You're listening to GDA Podcast, powered by GDA Speakers, now available on iTunes and all other podcast platforms with new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. GDA Podcast showcases insightful conversations from the best thought leaders, educators, policy experts, motivators, and storytellers on the keynote speaking circuit today. Want today's guest at your next event? Call GDA Speakers at 214-420-1999 or visit gdaspeakers.com. And now, here's this episode of GDA Podcast with hosts Scale and Kyle Davis. Enjoy. Peter Sheehan is the founder and group CEO of Carrikins Group, a global-oriented consulting firm focused on elevating clients to be the obvious choice in the hearts and minds of their customers, communities, and employees. I know that Pete and his group do like 40,000 workshops, and we're going to have him explain what that's all about. But in addition, I'd like to say that he is the author of, I think, seven books, four well-respected business books, including his most recent book, Matter, and he is one of the most book speakers at GDA. Mm -hmm. And so I'm thrilled to have Peter on today's episode of GDA Podcast. Welcome, Peter. Hey, Peter. Thanks, Gail. Thanks, Kyle. Does that mean the other three books were spectacular flops and uh, no one's ever heard of them? (laughs) (laughs) No, maybe. What were they? Okay, I know former (laughs) business books. What were the other ones? Were they children's stories? They were written for high school. They were written for high school students 15 years ago to help them transition from education to work. That's where, like, that's the founding of Carrikins Group. We went, it was a very community-focused organization. We'd go into high schools and teach kids the things we all wish we'd learned when we are in 11th and 12th grade or in our college years to help us lead a more effective life, so to speak. And that was kind of what started it all. And did that, I mean, I know people are going to notice the accent. So did the company start in Australia? Yeah. So I started in my bedroom in Dulwich Hill, which is a a fairly middle-class suburb in in Sydney, and then grew from there. I mean, we have offices now in 20, oh, we have significant physical offices in about four cities around the world, Toronto, Denver, uh, Auckland, Sydney, and then we have staff in about another 25 cities on top of that. So Sydney was the origin, but uh, the world is kind of the destination. That's incredible. So how did you go from focusing on teaching high school students what you wish you had learned to being such a significant player in consulting um, for major corporations. I know personally the work that I've done with you with one of the largest companies um, in the world. So how did, the, how did you make that leap? Yeah, so I was focused almost entirely on the what you would now call the millennial generation or, or generation Y as we were defining it back then. And, you know, when all kind of, when the whole business community woke up to the fact that there was a different sort of set of expectations from consumers, there was new expectations from talent and the digital revolution was in its early stages. You know, I I was working with a couple hundred thousand of these kids, quote unquote, every single year. And so out of nowhere, large corporations started calling me literally and saying, hey, you work with millions of these kids around the world. Can you tell us about what their needs are, what their expectations are, how we position our brand? And so that sort of unwarranted desire and demand led me to write and do actually quite a significant piece of research and then write a book called Generation Y, which sounds really obvious today, but 10 or 11 years ago, almost 12 years ago now, was basically the first, I think maybe the second book in the world on the topic. So 
Um, the transition happened really quickly when I packaged our research and our insight into the needs of the next generation of consumers and employees uh, into what does that mean for organizations, both at a brand level and a cultural level. But the real transition into the biggest space, if you think about the work we've done together and, and the work Caracans Group now does around the world, it became very clear to us very quickly when doing that work that it wasn't really about millennials. They were just one symptom or one indicator of the broader change and disruption. And that, in fact, the challenge organizations had was maintaining their relevance in the market, period, whether that be their customers, whether that be their the talent they're trying to attract, retain, and engage, or whether that be the very communities that give them their social license to operate, right? And so we stepped back and went, ah, the millennial Gen Y thing is just one force of disruption. What are the rest? And more importantly, to where we do our work, and this is really the, the crux of what we do, is what is it going to take for an organization to maintain its relevance and build its reputation and, and become the obvious choice in the face of all of that change and disruption? And that's really been our sweet spot for the last you know, 11 or 12 years. Would you say that the, the change in expectations, whether it be millennials or even nowadays, they're, they're the same thing or are, they, uh, or are they different than they were 10 or 12 years ago? Yeah, so we have very strong opinion about that, but I need to separate the the answer between, say, the talent marketplace and the consumer marketplace, right? So if we look at, at talent and employees and culture and employee value propositions, when you get to the heart of it, everyone really wants the same thing. They want to feel like they're developing their career and working for you will make them more employable. They want to feel like there's purpose and meaning to that work. They want to feel like they're well compensated. They want to feel like it's a respectful environment. I mean, the basic values that are being presented by either millennials today or Gen Y millennials 10 years ago or even baby boomers 30 years ago, the core value car is exactly the same. Mm -hmm. What seems to have changed is the rules they have as to whether or not you're meeting them, right? So a respectful workplace culture once upon a time might have been that the boss knew your name. <laughs> now, it's like if you haven't invited them out on the yacht, introduced them to your kids and let them work from home for out of the last 16 days, there's no respect, you know? And so I'm being a bit facetious, but it's this notion that we just have a different set of rules to define whether those values are getting met. So that's from the employee. Well, I, I, yeah, I can say as a, as a millennial employee, uh, the the cold relationship where you just know the person's name and you have very little interaction is not nearly as fun as being able to go to their Hamptons house. <laughs> yeah. Or, or if we get really serious about it, not nearly as fun as feeling like you're in a purpose-driven organization making an impact on the world. Right. And and that, yeah. go ahead. You go, mate. No, no, no. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say, and that, and that you, you're being enriched in your own life by being part of that team and, and a participant in that in that journey. Yeah, I mean, the 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 time that I spent out in Silicon Valley, the the company that I that I loved working for the most out there was definitely a company that built culture and and everything about it was not just about improving the company's bottom line pre IPO to IPO, but then uh, just really seeing what they can do to better the community and really feeling like you're part of a team and having everybody's insight and that's what really made it stand out and made it such a great experience in comparison to the other startups which were like Ugh, miserable. <laughs> yeah. And so, like, that's not a millennial thing. What we saw with our most recent research that ended up in, in our last book, Matter, uh, it was that organizations are increasingly expected to do that across the board. 
talented people of all ages want that experience, but so do consumers as well. Mm-hmm. And the second part to your question was, has it changed at a consumer level? And I would say fundamentally changed at a consumer level because of digital capabilities, self-service, the role technology plays in how we interact with organizations, the level of transparency that exists, the fact that we all have our basic physical needs met these days, that it's essentially an existential crisis that we're we're, we're faced with solving every day means we elevate the expectations we place on the organization. Now, that's not just true in the Western world. We see that in Eastern and developing markets as well, obviously, to a lesser extent. But yes, I think we're seeing, I think what we're seeing today around one, consumer expectations, um, but two, even in the B2B environment, we're seeing this kind of emergence of an expectation that their partners, whether they be consumer brands or or business-to-business manufacturers, whatever the right category is, that they serve the higher-order need, right? Now, that's not all about – I'm not saying that every organization has to be all about community and that culture is the only strategic lever that they can pull to create value. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying there is a big shift in how we interact with these organizations, how we partner with them in a B2B fashion, and the expectations we have on how they behave because that's important for us and our ability to tell our story and differentiate both in an employee market and an employee and in a in a, um, in a in a sales marketplace as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, the only thing that I would say with that is that I think kind of the unique thing about uh, millennials, a lot of people say that we complain a whole lot. I just think that for the first time in a long time, people are actually vocal about their employee, employment experience. And so they're like telling you, hey, this is what we want. But on the flip side, it's the same thing from consumers. So it's like trying to meet that bottom end as to what you're trying to say is like, are you meeting this need and what are you doing outside of it? Because there's a lot of companies that could probably provide you like the great service. But if it's with like a non-reputable company or somebody who has a bad reputation or something like that, then you know, it may not be worth the merger or the partnership. Yeah, we have a we have a belief that reputation is everything. And actually, there's some fascinating research um, that, you know, maybe we can t- attach to the podcast or something like that that shows that companies that protect and invest in their relationship develop, um, drive up to two times more shareholder value than those that don't, right? So this is not, you know, we're talking about, we sorry, we got into this conversation talking about the millennials, but it's really about value creation, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, we're going back to matter, this most recent piece of research, we actually found that there were kind of five attributes that really enabled an organization to elevate itself uh, and and differentiate itself in the market in a way that the buyer, whether it be a consumer or or in the B2B sense, would attach genuine economic value to. and, And purpose and meaning was one of them, actually. And that was kind of new, but you look at brands, not just like the typical Tom Shoes, but even look at an organization like Warby Parker and the way they behave, or you look at the paper and pulp manufacturer, Domtar, and the groundbreaking and industry transforming approaches they had to um, minimizing environmental impact and turning paper and forestry into a renewable resource. Like, it's not just the sexy consumer examples that we saw purpose and meaning, we saw it um, in the B2B space too. And there were four other attributes that if, you know, if you want to get into, I'm happy yeah. to unpack. Yeah. Let, let's, let's, uh, do the, the 30,000 foot view, as they say, of those four. Yeah. Okay. So really quickly, the, the, the other four were importance. And that's this notion that your buyer has a problem, but they have more, every buyer has a problem, but every buyer has problems they care about more. Right. Yes. And the question is, are you solving the higher order problem in the mind of the marketplace? Right. So let me give you kind of uh, an example. Let me give you a consumer example. Nike sells athletic apparel and sneakers, 
right? But the ultimate problem that the market is trying to solve is to consistently engage in a disciplined way in exercise and a healthy lifestyle. And the biggest challenge we face is not access to functional product or sexy apparel, it's motivation and, and accountability, right? And so what Nike has done with its Nike Plus platforms and its Nike Training Club platforms is basically behavioral economics meets social pressure and social media meets technology, the internet of things, and manufacturing to create really a, a holistic behavior change platform, right? And this is a company that just grows double digits on multi-billion dollar base, has market share in certain sports over 90% because they constantly evolve from the current increasingly commoditized need into that higher order need. So that's a, that, that was number one. The second was complexity. And this is kind of, if you really step back, is a bit of an obvious one, right? If you're solving problems that aren't particularly complex, whether it be for the consumer or a B2B environment, then it's a pretty good chance other people know how to solve them too. So there's not a lot of there's not a lot of scarcity or differentiation there if you're basically solving the commoditized problem. So that actually leaning into the complexity and going after the things that other people aren't yet prepared to go after might presented the opportunities for for a point of difference and presented the opportunities to be seen as the quote unquote obvious choice. Right now, interestingly, you could take Adobe as an example of that. Right, Adobe used to make creative software products like Elements and Premiere and Photoshop or whatever, and they would allow the marketer to make beautiful imagery that was consistent across multiple mediums, right? But that's not the high, that's not the higher order problem. The higher order problem is marketers know half of their marketing works, they just don't know which half, right? And Adobe has so much data it collects from some of the world's largest retailers that its ability to lean in the complexity of that data and not just help people make beautiful imagery but make, make the right image show it to the right buyer in the right way at the right time, that's really the, the higher-order problem. But there's a lot of complexity there. So Adobe have leaned into that complexity, and according to Gartner, are really the market-leading solution in that space. But they make less profit on that revenue than they make on their traditional product revenue, which is now deployed as software as a service, right? But the, interestingly, Wall Street values that revenue basically at two to one compared to um, the traditional revenue. So going after that complexity doesn't necessarily generate immediate margins, but it generates a position and a sticky relationship and a strategic relationship that allows you to plug and sell the other products. The other two I'll do really quickly um, was how do you mitigate and absorb risk? So take risk away from the buyer and absorb it onto your balance sheet or into your world. Mm -hmm. And we're seeing a lot of examples of that. Uh, and then finally was friction. How do you remove friction and make it easy? Look at like what Warby Parker did in the kind of glasses space is just a simple example of that or the way Mercedes-Benz are designing um, service centers at airports so their busy, wealthy travelers can just drop their Benz at the airport, run off to their work, come back, land, and it's been service cleaned and their dry cleaning's been done, right? So that was the fourth. Gosh, I could talk for five hours. I should shut up at this point. <laughs> no, no, what I love about your style, Pete, is that, I mean, obviously you bring a lot of enthusiasm to the stage, but you're talking about something that's based in research. And that's what I think is great. You know, you can make research sound exciting, but at the same time, what you're talking about, you know, is substantiated with many, many case studies. So I think that's um, what makes you very special for sure. Um, I appreciate that. I think, I think the, the market for thought leadership has evolved, right? There used to be like the three categories, the mega celebrity, the 
doesn't really bring a great deal of content, but right. everyone wants to hear their inside story from the locker room, right? Right. And you have the academics who have the theory and sometimes have the case study history as well. Rarely are they at the cold face of this work, right. but they just bore you to often bore you to tears. That's an unfair generalization, but they're a little they're too content rich and there's no kind of element. And then you've got the inspiring, engaging presenter, like I climbed a mountain, so can you. Right. But you know, what I've tried to do is I don't have the celebrity status, that's never going to be my game. But if I can merge depth and rigor with engagement and, and inspiration in a provocative way, but do so through the lens of case studies that we have, in the majority of cases, been involved in. So we're talking about real work with real companies that we understand. That feels like it's a bit of a sweet spot for, for, for me in this market anyway. So one of the things that I kind of want to circle back on when you're talking about the, the value props, if you will, um, what, I'm just out of pure curiosity, I do want to say, is it four or is it five? Because I counted five. Yeah, the, it's. I said the other four. The, the first other four. So, okay. Okay. The first, meaning. Okay, yeah. cool. I, th- I thought so. I was like, because I, I was writing them all down. I'm like, ah, okay, cool. Just making sure. But you know, when I go, when I, when you, when you're giving me this list and I'm going through it, I'm like, okay, purpose and meaning. I totally understand that importance. I get it. Complexity. I understand what it's like if you can go and if somebody says, here's my insanely complex problem, and if I have all the data and I have the team. And if I can make that problem very simple for you, I completely understand that as well. But when you start talking about, you know, mitigating and absorbing risk, and then the next part, removing friction, and we can talk about the Warby Parker example, um, probably with that. How are you seeing companies before you talk to them handling the mitigating and the absorbing of risk? And then what are they doing afterwards? And then the same thing for the, the removal of friction. Yeah, so let me give you, like, let's use a really generic and easy to access example for risk. Think about what Rolls Royce does with its aircraft engines, right? So, if United um, Airlines or, you know, pick your airline of choice, wants to install a Rolls Royce engine into its dream liner or whatever, whomever's responsible for that purchase, they don't necessarily want the risk of owning that hard asset, nor do they want it to sit on their balance sheet necessarily for tax reasons either, right? And so Rolls-Royce see that and they go, well, you know what? We'll rent you the engine, right? And you pay per mile flown and, you know, it's a pay-for-usage model and you see that with software as a service too, increasingly as well. And this whole move to everything as a service in a way, like take data centers. Who wants to own the responsibility of their own data centers? If you can guarantee security for the data, then I would love to put the risk and the the organizational complexity and the distraction of managing data centers onto someone who's that's their core competency. And I can leverage the fact that they're, they've got greater volume to run across their fixed assets, et cetera, et cetera. So that's a, a risk mitigation piece. Does that make sense? No, it totally makes sense now. So it's like um, the example that's most salient in my mind is like the difference between building a CRM versus going to a company like Salesforce and saying, okay, we could build this thing, but it's going to take time, effort, energy, lots of money. It probably won't even come out the way that I really want it to and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Or I can just go with the industry leader that's been doing it for 17 years and I get every single update that they have because I'm doing a SaaS model versus having you know, something else. Yeah, or to give you a, you know, for your listeners who maybe aren't in the technology space or making, you know, multi-million dollar engines, we saw the same with a logistics company. We studied a freight company in Canada who was like single million dollar digits, like a seven-figure company, not even large in any capacity, right? Mm -hmm. But they saw that 
the increasing complexity of cross-border transportation, the inefficiency that was existing within the the, the brokering system and how they would sort of negotiate what are called lanes, which is like Montreal to Toronto or Toronto to New York. And they were like, you know what? We should become the outsource provider of freight solutions for the entire company. And they would go to consumer products companies and consumer brand companies and say, you know what? You're not in the business of freight and logistics. This is what we do. Let us take over your business. Let us absorb the risk of customs and, 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 and uh, goods flow across borders let us do the compliance work around refrigeration and 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 fda needs and all that kind of stuff and so in a way they're taking that risk on board and removing it from the organization itself so now when we're talking if we when we switch over to the next model which is the removal of friction and making the process simpler whether it's through uh customer acquisition or the onboarding process making that you know less less frictional and more uh simplistic if you will you know, to me, in my mind's eye, it seems that you it has to be like that's almost where the innovation and that's where like the ideas come from because it seems to me like some the, the, the most uh, amazing removal ideas like the one that you just mentioned with Mercedes Benz. It's so obvious that I would never even think of it. You know, yeah. yeah. So it's I'm, I'm just curious as to what are companies doing to help uh, to to remove friction and to make life easier for uh, for their clients. Yeah, so let me just support the point you just made first, which is that it's in those um, pain points, to use a fairly cliched term, that some of these opportunities are found, right? And we have this uh, saying we call it hidden in plain sight, you know? Mm-hmm. Mercedes such it was such a great example. They did some research and they found out that their customers were rich. Groundbreaking, I know. Right? <laughs> like, but uh, many of them, but the issue, by the way, the fundamental issue was they weren't servicing their vehicles consistently. And so... They were. That's a, one of the most profitable parts of the automotive industry is the service relationship. Not to mention that it's sticky, and it allows them to sell you or upgrade you on the next lease or the next car. You want the service relationship, right? Yep. And when they got to the heart of why people weren't doing it, it was so annoying. They'd usually be downgraded to some terrible rental that the the dealership was lending out if they could get one at all. They'd be all lined up at seven a.m. so they didn't have a two-hour wait. To, it was just full of friction. Right, And so they tested on two airport locations uh, in different cities what it would be like to take a very small piece of real estate, because don't forget it's expensive to be at an airport, where you could drop off your vehicle, like on a Monday, they would quickly run you to your terminal. Literally, you could leave your dry cleaning and stuff on the back seat. They'd run your car service, do your dry cleaning, hang it up, put a couple of lint chocolates on the front seat, which they stole from Lexus, and send you back. (laughs) you know, on your way, right? And that's literally what they did. Do you know what was fascinating? It didn't just fix the service challenge. It became one of the highest velocity sales environments in the network because what would happen was, you just think about this for a second, like you fly off on a Monday, one of two things have happened. You've either closed the deal, which makes you feel like a master of the universe, or you miss the deal, which makes you feel sorry for yourself. Either way, you have the perfect narrative to justify buying a new car, right? Like there's, there's a certain story you could tell yourself and you land back on a Tuesday and you're like, you know what? I'm flying again on Thursday. Why don't I just demo that S class? Why don't I demo that? E- Let me just see what it's like. Once you've taken that E class home or that S class home, you're not trading back to your C class in a million years. Right. No. And so they started driving sales almost unintentionally through these service drop-off centers, which were really just branded, you know, physical spaces. It was phenomenal. Anyway, so back to your point, Kyle, it is about friction and removing it. And, we're, and, and what's interesting is there are so many go-to-market models 
um, or to use kind of consulting speak, there are so many value chains where people are holding on to their role in the value chain and actually not creating any new value, but extracting value by creating friction, right? So this scares people as an idea, which is, you know, you, you take the funds management business. There's research that suggests that nine out of 10 active managers never outperform the market and that the single best thing you can do is buy the index and buy it at a fraction of the normal fees, right? But you do that and you disrupt an entire value chain, many of which many people who are involved in which get their money from brokering and, and restricting access, right? So there's two sides of that friction thing, right? One is that, yes, it can have tremendous consumer and um, customer uh, value, but on the flip side, it can extract entire functions out of the value chain that can disrupt industries in, in really significant ways. So, you know, it's, a, it's an interesting space. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, the most salient example of it that, that comes to my mind is um, Square, the company that I work for in San Francisco. I mean, what they did for for accepting credit card payments was an absolute disruption to the credit card industry, to the merchant services accounts, to the banking industry, because you, you got rid of all of that. And instead, it was a simple form that you filled out. It took two seconds. You were either approved or denied. Nine times out of ten, you were approved. And then uh, you could start accepting credit card payments on your iPhone. You didn't have to purchase a you know a two thousand dollar point of sale system. You could just start taking payments right away. And yeah. uh, you know, as a company that really focused and really went in and said, you know, what are the things that are limiting companies' sales? You know, you have so many of these cash only businesses. You know, we're going to then make it. Uh, so that they can make commerce easy to steal their slogan. <laughs> That's square. Thank you, Jack Dorsey. Bless up. Uh, so anyways, it, it, it made commerce easy for people because for the first time in a long time or the first time ever, they could actually take credit card payments and it was a flat you know, fee. They, they knew right. what was coming. They weren't going to get hit with this, you know, merchant services account or not uh, fee or not processing enough fee. It was just a flat fee. And it almost seemed for many people too good to be true. And that's what made it so good was it wasn't, it was, that's what it was. And that's what it is today. Yeah. And let's look at the on, on, let's look at the broader implications of that. If your first data and you make a lot of money selling those other devices for 2000 bucks, that's challenging, right? Mm -hmm. If you're a, if you're the merchant services group inside of a bank, that's really just changing one of your core highest margin product and service lines. But on the flip side, think about what that, that does for unleashing um, greater transparency into the cash marketplace and, and the ability for the government to collect taxes in a meaningful and efficient manner. I mean, there's so many other consequences, both positive and negative, that come from that, which makes something like Square such a beautiful example of innovation. But it's essentially going after friction. That's where it's at. Yeah. And you're right. I mean, like there was a lot of people for the first time ever, they're like, wow, I got to pay taxes on this stuff. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. you're what you thought you could just run your cash only hair salon forever. That's not going to work. Like, yeah, pay Uncle Sam. That's, that's, you your, wanna, rent. that's your rent for this country. Is there, you want to know something? Oh, sorry. Yeah, you go. I was just going to say, is there any industry that isn't going to be disrupted? I mean, I, no, they're just I'm just going to tell you this yeah. answer is going to be no. <laughs> yeah. All, Huh. You know, I'm thinking about it. Um, it really, so here, let me, let me caveat this conversation a little bit. We, the study we did before matter was how do organizations make intelligent decisions about disruption, okay. right? So we were, we're trying to understand how you create 
enterprise value and not destroy it, right? And, and other people have studied that. And let me give an example that Booz Allen Hamilton did a study that found that 90% of all enterprise value destroyed um, from risk came from strategic risk. That is, senior executives and boards making very bad assumptions about change in the marketplace and the impact it would have on their organizations and the way they went to market, right? Far bigger than fraud or environmental disaster or all these other things that we give so much attention, right? But when we dived into disruption, like even take Square as an example to build on Carl's um, case there, there is not a single example in all of human history that we could find where that disruption came out of nowhere, right? The notion that there was inefficiency in the payments um, value chain and the, and the concept that we needed greater levels of mobility and the likelihood that someone was going to find out how to use smartphones and smart tablets to do that was five, six, seven years before Dorsey launched Square with his other investors and partners, right? Um, Uber's another great example. Every conference you go to, someone wants to go, oh my gosh, Uber disrupted them overnight. <laughs> Uber turns 12 in October. Like, come on. It does? Yeah. Yeah, right? Oh my and goodness. I've been using Uber now. This is, I, well, I actually launched my first complaint on Twitter about Uber yesterday, but that's neither here nor there. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I, I've had an Uber account since 2011, I think. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe even longer than that. Yeah, but it's, so what happens is these, what really changes an industry are things that have sat on the periphery, threats or opportunities for a period of time. So let's take financial services, which is probably half the, the thought leadership speaking business, right? Um, the concept that's what's coming out in financial services right now that was a result of Dodd-Frank is, Dodd is this notion that um, advisors, brokers and agents, depending on product category, need to put their clients' best interests at the center of their recommendation as opposed to just recommending a product that could be arguably suitable for that client. The concept that an investment advisor should put their client's best interest at heart is confronting that we have to regu regulate that to begin with, I would suggest. But they, we have been talking about this for more than a decade in the industry. And Australia, the UK, Hong Kong, other markets have already gone on down this path anyway. So it's not like no one saw it coming. Does that make sense? Like yeah. this... This was, was on the periphery. Now, what happens is it change, change is slow until it's not, right? Mm -hmm. And so it chips away at the edge, Uber style, right, until like 2011 where an early adopter group like Kyle and his mates jump on Uber and all of a sudden they start telling the story. Uber get massive VC money. They expand the offer. By 2013, 2014, we're all using Uber, right? But that, that forgets the six or seven years prior to that, that it was chipping away, chipping away, chipping away, chipping away, right? And so this idea that, you know, your question, will there be any industry that's not being disrupted? I agree with Carl. The answer is no. But there'll be very few industries disrupted by things that people aren't already aware of, right? right. Let me give you one. Let me, let, let's, we've just done two historic examples. Let's use a future example. 18% of all Americans work in transportation, 18%, right? Depending, give or take, depending on the numbers, that you understand. We are three to four years from commercial freight being done by driverless trucks, like maybe six or seven years at worst, right? We are 10 to 15 years max from full autonomous driving on the road, right? Now, you can't tell me anyone in the, like any of the Uber drivers to build on that example aren't aware that that's coming. You can't tell me that the property and casualty insurance industry aren't aware that their duty of care is going to shift from the individual potentially to the OEM. You can't tell me that the collision repair shops 
aren't aware that there's going to be a whole lot less and way less severe collisions when human error is removed from that scenario. Now, Gail, you don't need a crystal ball to know that. Right. We know this now, right? So there won't be a single industry that's disrupted by something that no one predicted. There'll be a whole bunch of people struggling for relevance because they failed to get ahead of it. I mean, you can already see that today with Tesla. I mean, they had, there's that video online. I, think, I want to say it's in the Netherlands. The guy's going down the highway. And now with their new software update that uses the radar that shoots underneath the car in front of you to see four cars ahead, it stopped a second before the accident happened. Like, it's yeah, the it's most insane. And, and the most insane car I've ever driven to is the P100D. So if Elon Musk is listening, send me one. I want it all black. <laughs> Uh, I'm gonna, I'm Good gonna, luck on that. I'm gonna it's not going to happen. The aspirated Italian um, sports cars, but uh, uh, yeah, I, I could do a Tesla too. Yeah. Maybe, maybe we get matching ones, Carl. Yeah. Well, I, I, well, I've said this kind of about like, um, well, we had when we had the when we did the Nando podcast. I think there's like two things that are going to happen. I think there's always going to have like this nostalgia where people are going to want to go back to something. You're going to want to go back to the time when you could drive a six speed manual, 1964, you know, Alfa Romeo convertible doing some hill toe down a country road somewhere. But at the same point in time for like your daily every day, if I can just throw it, if I can just throw it in, um, gosh, what am I forgetting? The mode is called for Tesla's, but if you can just throw it in the autonomous mode and just have it drive you wherever, I mean, that's insane. I mean, there's a guy who had a heart attack and he put, uh, it, while he was driving his Tesla and he, he asked the Tesla, drive me to the nearest hospital. And it drove him to the hospital while he was having a heart attack and it saved his life rather than him pulling over and waiting for an ambulance. Wow. It's insane. Yeah. It's fine. My so is like the Swiss watch of the watch category, right? Right. Now, if I was to ask you the, but let's think about this, right? If I was to ask you the question, what are the most popular watch brands? You might go Rolex, Patek Philippe, you know, Udemez, Piguet, Hublot, if you're into that, mm-hmm. collect a space. But actually, the Apple Watch is the second most popular watch brand in the world, right? Wearing one right now. <laughs> yeah, and the sh- but like the share of the, the Swiss watch group, whilst making a massive resurgence, the share it has in the market is still not as significant as the digital space, right? And so I absolutely see that market for the heel toe, driving your, your Porsche six-speed, whatever, down the country road. But the reality is most of us are going to want to just be on the phone and working when we're getting from place to place, you know? And so there will be this kind of this creator, um, quite authentic niche market that emerges in these spaces but let me tell you there's not a single consumer or packaged goods company on the planet that's feeling nostalgic about the dangers and risks and the cost of hiring humans to drive one box from montreal to toronto or from denver to to la we're going to say thank you very much and the only people who feel nostalgic about it will be the truck drivers who fail to prepare themselves for the world as it's going to exist and and i'm you know, I hate to sound rather mean, but it's kind of like what you just said. It's it's failure to prepare. You know, I have family and friends from Michigan and Ohio, and you could see the robots were coming to do your job 15 years ago. The fact that you didn't prepare for it then, you're sitting on the sidelines now. I'm like, are you surprised? Yeah. I mean, I mean it sounds and- callous. It sounds rude. But, like, you had 15 years to prepare for it. I mean, what are you doing now? You know, can I can I present – so I agree with that fundamentally – um, however, I do think this change, I think we need to think at the level of systems rather than at the level of the individual. So, mm-hmm. you know, 
Carl, for an educated professional like you that's been exposed to the sort of thought leadership that you have through GDA and your mom and the people you hang out with, to you that's a really logical thing. But not everyone has that same level playing field. Fair enough? Fair. And are often crippled by fear. And so I'm going to cite an example of an organization who only yesterday for the first time made it onto the Fortune Best Workplaces list, and that's AT&T, right? This is an organization that is spending tens of millions of dollars investing in retooling its workforce. So they've been really clear. Their CEO, Randall, has been so visionary to come out and say, you know what? We're moving to a software-defined world, not a hardware-defined world, and the skills we needed for the last 80 to 100 years are going to be irrelevant in the next 10. But we see it as our responsibility as an active member of the community because organizations and communities are inextricably linked. We see it as our role to give those people every possible chance to retool themselves and get ready. And I can tell you, I've seen very few organizations in my life that are that committed as, say, AT&T is, right? And so I want to see a future where, you know, because, by the way, Gartner released a report and others have done similar, which is suggesting that 46 47% of all U.S.-based jobs are going to be automated within the next two decades, right? Just think about that. That's you know, incredible. That may be your yeah, next – uh, research and book is helping companies have that responsibility for how to retool their workforce, which will be impacted by disruption. Yeah. And in a way, the concept of mattering more, which is the, the last piece we did, is about that, you know, and I believe that new jobs will be created. They always have. Yeah, However, the true. rate at which the dislocation is going to happen is going to be far more quickly. It's going to happen far more quickly than it did with the first industrial revolution and the steam engine, et cetera, because it's coming from digital bits and bytes and the ability for them to scale and self-learn and the the net cost of every additional unit, zero, right? Like it might cost you $100 million to write the code, but you could every net new user of the code is basically zero because you're already paying for everything right, else. Right? Right. And so the rate at which that change will happen will be faster than society's ability to adjust. And so we need People like Kyle going, you know what, I'm going to re-educate myself. I'm going to build my skills. We need organizations like AT&T who are visionary and courageous to do that. But we're going to need systemic level um, change. And this will be one of the important roles of government, irrespective of whether you believe in big or small government. This will be part of what they have to do. Otherwise, we face a level of disruption at a social level. Imagine if 46% of people whose entire identity is tied to their work in the Western world in many ways can't find work. I mean, this is going to be pretty serious stuff. I mean, they're doing it already in Germany. I think um, I'm forgetting what it is, but all the auto workers that work for the Volkswagen Group and whatnot, they have like a, a re-education pool where their money, like, like a portion of their income goes to, and then like I think the government matches it. And then when the job is like nearing, you know, hey, the robots are about to take it, <laughs> they then send them to education to, to re-educate them on something else. So that way they're still relevant uh, in the marketplace. Agreed. Yeah. So I think that's good. I mean, whether it's a system like a government or a great company like AT&T, everybody gets a fair shake. So that's awesome. So uh, cool. Well, I think we're going to wrap this up now. Uh, if people want, they should go out and buy Matter, which uh, will be available uh, for purchase on the GDA podcast website. That's gdapodcast.com. And if you're interested in booking Peter Sheehan for any one of your events, you can do so by contacting GDA speakers at 214-420-1999 or gdaspeakers.com. Calm. Thanks, Peter. Thank you, Peter. Thanks, Tim. Uh, have a good one. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of GDA Podcast, powered by GDA Speakers. If you're interested in booking today's guest, visit GDA Speakers at gdaspeakers.com or call 214-420-1999. Visit gdapodcast.com and subscribe to our newsletter to stay up to date and be informed of new episodes, blog posts, and more. Be sure to follow GDA Podcast on Twitter and Instagram at GDA Podcast, as well as Facebook at facebook.com slash GDA Podcast. Thanks again and stay tuned for more from GDA Podcast and GDA Speakers.